Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. This week on Ivy League Murders, we're covering Yale's Dr. Dirk Greiniger. This is a true crime podcast. In this episode, we cover subjects like violent murder and sexual scenarios. Listener discretion is advised. So, Laura, we've had Harvard, 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 Harvard cases. I feel like we need to represent Yale, even though I don't want to as a Harvard graduate, but we have to do a Yale case. So what is our favorite Yale case? Well, our favorite Yale case is we went to Yale to jail. It's Dr. Dirk Reinadier. And I have to say, this is the case that one of the cases that really got me interested in the dark side of the Ivy League, because this is a local case for us. That's right. And we do have to talk a little bit about Yale. Yale is famous for certain alumni. Both George Bush Sr. and Jr. went there. Meryl Streep went there. Edward Norton went there, Angela Bassett went there. Countless. Countless. I think Yale is also, if people are familiar with Yale, it is also famous for Skull and Bones, the- uh, Secret uh, Society. Yeah, the Brotherhood of Death. It is a secret society and it's you know that's been subject to all kinds of conspiracy theories and basically probably the world's most elite uh, networking system, really. We may have to do a whole episode just on that. True, you're absolutely right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Yale, Sarah? So Yale is like, it sort of sits like a, this like gothic despot in the, in the middle of hard scrabble New Haven. If you've ever been to New Haven, it's very poor. So Yale is really, sits there. Obviously Dirk Reinader went to Yale Dirk Greiner was roommates with a guy named Tom Young in the late 50s. They were kind of an odd match because Young is this like affable, very sociable kind of guy. And he was total contrast to the much more serious and studious Greiner. In fact, I looked it up and his Yale friends called Greiner. His nickname was Grinder because he was so like he was swim team. He was really like high, high achiever. And so little did Young know that decades later, Greiner would use his name as a moniker to lead a twisted double life that led to murder. So this case, Laura, happens in, in Wellesley at a place called Morris Pond. This was back in 1999. And Wellesley is as you know, one of these places that is just beautiful, it's exclusive, it's very safe, and it's about 15 miles west of Boston. Right. The median house price is $1.3 million. That's pretty high. And I can imagine Wellesley's sort of like Belmont, sort of it's one of those places where I think the police just, their routine calls are like for treed cats and 
a rowdy teen making too much noise, a drunk driver. I imagine back on that fall day, it was Halloween morning of 1999, when the Wellesley police get this call for an attack at Morris Pond, they must have been pretty shocked. Well, there hadn't been a murder there in 30 years in Wellesley, so I am sure they were shocked. It had been a beautiful, crisp morning at Morris's Pond. Leaves were swirling all around and there had been a spark of excitement in the air. Because it was that sort of spooky New England Halloween feeling. There's nothing you know, like there's nothing, uh, there's like, nothing that like it. All yeah. the parents were preparing their kids' costumes for Halloween, and nobody could have anticipated that this would be a day and that would change Wellesley. Absolutely. And the Wellesley police, I think, were probably worried because there had been two similar attacks in nearby suburban wooded areas, both also of, of older people. So I think in the back of their minds, they probably did connect those other two prior recent attacks to the call that had come in. Right, and let's, those two cities were Walpole and Westwood. Both beginning with W. Both beginning with W. Just like Wellesley. And on that morning, Yale graduate, Dr. Jerk Reinadier and his wife, and she was a surgical nurse, Sarah? I believe so, yeah. She was a surgical nurse. Um, they were out for their weekly walk with their dogs up for right, Sarah? Yeah, and that, I think that was their habit. You know, that was one of those sort of touchstones in their marital habits, basically. Yeah, that, you know, their, yeah. their routine, they would go take walks around Morse Pond. And it's beautiful. And actually, you had read also that, that May Griniter had helped to save Morris Pond from developers. She did, when they wanted to develop over the pond and she had gotten really involved in the, in the community and with environmentalists and she actually was instrumental in saving Morris's pond. You know, little did she know at that point that you know, that's where her life would end. It must have been a shock because the grinders had reached a point in their life, right, where they had a certain level of comfort, he was a world-renowned allergist. Oh, he was published. He was, you know, we, we kind of take it for granted around here, but, you know, Boston is, this is... It's like a, a med It's, it's like a, a medical uh, mecca. It is. And he was at the Brigham and Women Hospital, which is people travel from around the world to go to. They had raised three children. All, all of the children went to Yale. And then they went on to go to Ivy League medical schools. And I mean, they had really, you know, from the outside, this family looked extremely successful. And their youngest, Britt, had just moved out of the house. Right. She had just moved out of the house. So this was a real transitional time for the family. And May was really starting to make some changes. Her niece had mentioned that she had just started to lose weight, had started to change her style a little, had been looking into getting a facelift. So this was really kind of a transitional time for her as a woman and for them as a couple. For the first time being alone in, in decades, they kind of maybe had some empty nest syndrome. So what happened that day? My understanding is that they set out on this walk, they parked, they brought their dog, Pretty soon into the walk, May, who did suffer from periodic back pain, basically said, look, honey, I have to sit and rest and stretch or work the kink out of her back. Right. I mean, we only have his word. So he, he says that on their walk and she says, I have to lay down and she lays down on the bench and tells him to walk on and he walks on. And when he returns, he finds her murdered. This is his story. 
So he claims that in a panic, he runs back to the main path and he sort of flags down the first guy that he sees, who's a guy who's walking his dog. He wants to know if they have a phone. That, right, that looking for any, he doesn't have a cell phone on him. Right. He left it in the van. So he's just looking for anyone around him who can give him some aid. And this is 1999. Some people had cell phones. I think I had a cell yeah, phone. Yeah, you know, I think it most was, people do, but not everybody's carrying their phone. You like know, they do walk, today. Right, on right. a walk in the park. People are jogging, people are walking their dogs. So yeah, it wasn't something everyone would have carried around with them, I think, as much as so as today. And, and it, we had these like ask. chunky Motorola one that weighed about 10 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> but he's able to help him. And so he winds up running back to his van and calling 911 from his own cell phone in the van and somebody else in the park hears a scream at 8.45 and the 911 call is made 11 minutes later. So we have an 11 minute time lapse from the scream to the 911 call. Grinder says that he sees a sort of dark figure like in a hoodie running away but he can't really chase him down because he's got to get back to the car. Right, and, and nobody help. else sees him. So, I mean, that's just something that, that he says but really we don't have anything to back that up. Yeah, and so this is what Dr. Grinder tells the police, and I think fairly quickly the police really were skeptical of his story. He does ask, wait, what is, the, what is one of the first things he says, Sarah? And so he asks, is my wife dead, and am I going to be arrested? Right, which is just, I mean, we don't want to judge how people react. People are in shock, but it's very unusual. It's callous at best and, yeah. and fishy at worst, I think. Right. So it was Marty Foley of the Massachusetts State Police. So he responded to the call. Wasn't the first one on the scene, but he sort of became the lead investigator on the case. And right off the bat, he noticed blood on Dr. Greinerger's clothing, but his hands were clean. Yeah. What did he tell Foley? What did Grinader tell Foley? So Dr. Grinader claimed that he had checked for May's pulse and tried to administer CPR. And Foley right away thought this was odd that he would check for pulse when she had a five inch by two and a half inch gash. It, it's so gruesome, but I saw an interview with Foley. He said, literally, you could see the artery. Like there's no checking the artery because you could see it. And had yes. he, you know, Foley's looking right at his hands. And had he, had that been true, which if you saw your loved one hurt, you may do that, his hands would have been bloody. Absolutely. And he said, he asked him point blank, he's like, did you wash your hands? And he asked him more than once. Yes. And, and he said no. He says no. And so I think in the back of Foley's mind, he's probably thinking like this guy was wearing gloves. And if he's wearing gloves, then why? Yeah. Right. I mean, it's extremely unusual that he would have blood spatter all over him and then have these remarkably clean hands. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's blood on his sleeves, but not on his hands. I think Foley observes May from a distance and he was careful not to stand. Like she's in this sort of sandy embankment. He believes that she was, she had been attacked and then dragged to a more secluded spot. And he notices like her shirt had been hyped up and her pants had been cut or ripped and yanked down. Like you could see she had like dark red pants, oh, like uh, panties on and you could see the lace on her underwear. And I, th I think the natural assumption is maybe she had been sexually, sexually assaulted or sexually attacked. So whoever had done this obviously had a tremendous amount of rage. 
And really, she had nearly, Laura, been decapitated in the attack. And so right away, Foley tells Dr. Grindadier that, you know, he sees his clothing really as part of the scene of the crime. And he tells him that he has to come down to the police station, which is standard. And he does not read him his Miranda rights at that point, because this is all pretty standard, which this becomes, you know, later on will become a bone of contention. He's really collecting all the pieces of the things from the crime scene. And he takes him down to the station and takes pictures of him. And oddly enough, Sarah, he's the jacket he's wearing is his daughter's swim team jacket. It's like a bright yellow. Yeah, which is just a little side note. And he's wearing dark pants and white tennis shoes. And immediately Dr. Grindier is getting kind of nervous down at the police station. And he starts to want his daughter there. And, you know, when Britt shows up, her reaction is even odd. And she yells out, you know, what happened between you and mom? And he immediately asks for a lawyer. This is a case, too, that divided that family. The the kids are very much on his side. When the awful news of May's murder like percolates through their family, they had an obvious sense of disbelief. And then that was compounded by the police's like really pretty quick suspicion that was cast on their father. They're thinking there's no way their quiet, mild-mannered dad could have done this. And so the Griner kids, well... They're mourning for their mother. They're also rally protectively behind their father. But increasingly, the police just find more and more evidence that points towards Dr. I mean, everything's pointing to that. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a pretty messy murder. We're on the day of the crime. The police bring dogs in. Right away. Yeah, they do. Because I think there still is this belief, initial belief, that... May Grinder might be the third victim of the series of murders that had been happening around ponds. They do, and they block off the park in case the suspect, I mean, Dirk says he sees a suspect. So they, they do take all the precautions to look for a suspect. So the attack on May, both of these other attacks on older victims had been really brutal. The one on Eileen Kennedy that had been in a park called Bird Walk, she had been stabbed. 29 times. Right. So the same sort of overkill rage, what they saw in, in May's murder, I think they also saw in Eileen Kennedy's murder as well. I mean, this was the police initial. Initially, but when they brought the dogs in, the dogs didn't run out into the woods looking for a suspect. They immediately picked up on the scent and went right to a storm drain. Right. And this storm drain, it becomes important. What do they find in the storm drain? Well, in the storm drain, which is, I mean, I think that it's, we'll, we'll put it up on, on Facebook, the map, but the storm drain, the proximity is actually right where Dirk kind of runs off early on after when the dog walker sees him. And what they find in the storm drain is they find the drilling hammer, the knife, and glove. And there's blood on the drill hammer and blood on the knife right. as well. I think that's what the dog had hit Right. So, well. I mean, this is like a basic murder kit that they find in this that's been hastily stashed away. And I think some of the thought is that Grinder had gone down this access road, which was a dead end, by the way, and had quickly kind of thrown these items and then returned back and then kind of pretended to call out to people. Right. I don't really think he had much time to dispose of everything, which is why I think you find everything in such close proximity. That's right. In subsequent searches of the park, they also find the matching glove. It's in a catch basin 
that's a few feet from Dirk Grinader's van. Immediately, Foley applies for a search warrant for the Grinader's house and gets it. What he finds there will pull off the respectable veneer Dr. Grinader had built so diligently. Okay, Laura, so let's back up. Who were May and Dirk Grinader? Well, Dirk Grinader was born in 1940 in Berlin, and his father was a doctor in Nazi Germany. They moved to Lebanon in 1945, right after the war. And as we've discussed, Dirk went to Yale. He was an extremely high achiever. He spoke four languages and went on to medical school and became a world-renowned allergist. May Shegwin was born in 1941. May and Dirk met in 1964 and were married in 1968. In order to win over Dirk's Germanophilic family, May not only had to learn German, she had to learn to cook German food. All right, Sarah, over the years, the Grinadiers quietly raised their successful children in Wellesley, and Dr. Grinadier was the director of clinical allergies at Brigham and Women's Hospital, one of the nation's top research centers. They were very involved parents, attending every swim meet and activity that their children became involved with. Both two of their children became doctors. They were heavily involved in their Wellesley neighborhood, and they were the ideal family and neighbors. Shortly before May's death, Britt, their youngest daughter, had moved out and the Grindeneers found themselves alone for the first time in decades. You have to wonder if this is what led them down the dark path. Yeah, and meanwhile, as we know, the police are looking closely at actual paths around Morse Pond. So they talked to the dog walker. If you remember the dog walker, remember Dirk approaches the jogger and the, the dog walker right. asking them for a phone. And so when they talk to the dog walker, he tells them about some suspicious behavior on the part of Grinader. So the dog walker is actually familiar with the Grinaders because he's got a little dog and he sort of picks up his little dog because the Grinaders have a big aggressive dogs. And so that morning he recognizes Grinader and he sees him go down this path. And then the path is like a dead end path and then he sees him emerge about 45 seconds later. At that point, Grinader asks the dog walker if he has a phone. And so at the end of that path, that's where the police discover the hammer, the knife, and the glove. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and so the theory was that Grinader went down that path, stashed those items, then came back. As the police continued to investigate, they found more evidence that pointed towards Dirk. The search warrants for the house recovered the following evidence. In a doghouse, the investigators found a brown glove that matched the glove found in the storm drain. It was a brown mini dot for sure grip man's work glove. Not a very common type of glove, Sarah. Yeah, and during one of the researches, they also, they found a small bag of nails and a receipt for $6.97 from a nearby hardware store called Deals. Foley had already found the same pair of brown work gloves, those same sure grip brown work gloves, Laura, at Deals. So he was familiar with it already. And he got to thinking like, what if that distinctive hammer that they had found in the storm drain also came from Deals? Um, so the hammer in question, it's called a drill hammer. And I guess it's used to split granite. It's yeah, like something. a very specific kind of hammer. And, and almost like 
and we'll, we'll post a picture. It almost looks like a little, like a small sledgehammer. And actually, lo and behold, Deals was one of the few places to sell it. So basically, Deals hands over all their receipts to the investigators for that time period around that $6.97 receipt. Right. And so they dig and dig and dig and dig, and they find that a drill hammer was bought directly after those nails, Laura. I Amazing. Know. I know. Amazing. But the market thing, remember we found that that was bought in September of 1999, one month before May was killed. So he was, he was planning this. Yeah. I think it was like, that was, I don't know if that was. Well, I, I think he was planning this. Yeah. 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 I mean, if he had the forethought a month before to think I'm going to pay cash for this, I don't want this tracked. Then I'm assuming that he was making a plan. That's right. But you know, they also. I'm assuming they they had a plan. And also, Sarah, near some bushes close to May's body, they found some Ziploc bags, some lighter fluid, and oddly enough, a tinfoil baking pan. And although they didn't find any fingerprints, the FBI was able to determine forensically that the Ziploc bags had come from the Grenadier's house. That's right. And they were able to tell that with the ridges. So that the lab was able to determine that. So they really I never, it's speculative what he was using those for, but they were able to determine that they did come from their home. I, I had read also that they had found a white garbage bag too at the scene. And same thing that Foley says they kind of missed out on this one, but I guess when you have bags that rip along right, a certain you can, seam. They can forensically look at the ridges and the rip and they can tell if it yep. was ripped from the same. And I think they can also tell like in a series of right, ones in the, the that lot. have been made. Exactly. So why don't you tell me what they found in the garage? Oh, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> so, so they find Viagra and condoms secreted inside of a box. So Dirk and May had ceased to have sex. So this discovery was like further evidence that he was having an affair. The police were looking at the financials, so they already knew that he was going to nearby hotels and paying for nearby hotels. Right, right. When there wasn't conferences for allergists or anything like that, they already suspected that he was having an extramarital affair. And so the condoms and the self-prescribed Viagra was further proof. They also seized his computers. And not only did they find evidence of like research of those two other murders of older people in parks. So he was like doing his homework about right. that. On his computer, they also find various communications with escort services and prostitutes and random like internet dating sites. And there's even an email exchange between a couple for, you know, for a threesome. Basically, but I think he had tried to erase all of this. So they're going through and like piecing together these erased emails and figuring out that he's living a double life. Right. And this is basically when they start to get the first glimpse of his double life. Because they know the Viagra is not for his wife. Why would it be hidden in the garage? I mean, just reading about the smuttiness of these exchanges, it's just, it's so... Oh, it's so depressing. It really is. I mean, and I think we should also add that his screen name was Casual Guy 2000. So I don't think he planned on being 
married in uh, the millennium. No. This, this is 99, yeah, and exactly. his screen name was Casual. So he went from married with children in 99 to Casual, to guy, casual guy in 2000, right? I mean, I personally had a hard time. I mean, we, we read, Sarah and I, we do a tremendous amount of research, and we read the trial transcripts. It, it's hard to, to read the transcripts of some of these email exchanges, and I mean, it's oh, it's, it's really pretty raunchy. Sarah, maybe you could read us one of your favorite, one of Casual Guy 2000's exchanges. Oh, why, thank you, Laura. <laughs> I think I will. Since these were read in court. Okay, this is one of my favorite ones. White couple in their early 30s looking for average to chunky white men for sexual times. We enjoy peak booths, adult theaters, rest areas, dark bars, and most things public. We drink, he smokes, and we occasionally party. Not looking to entertain as we have kids, but could if we really liked someone i'm blah 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 description happily married but he enjoys me in a group situation and to be honest so do i <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. um so his response to that was i am white this is casual guy 2000s response i'm white married but she does not play so i'm looking for a very discreet couple with whom to play Ugh. i can't read the next one uh, no, I'm just too grossed out. I'm sorry. That's it. They're <laughs> <laughs> looking at this mild-mannered, oh, quiet little doctor, and Casual Guy 2000 is pretty raunchy and horny. Oh, yeah. No, it's true. But apparently Jill McDermott was pretty proper, so she had to go through all of, all of the email stuff. And so in his exchange email exchange with the couple for a threesome, he sends them a nude picture of himself. Of course, you know what I did, right, Laura? I totally Googled Grinader nude. Anyway, but didn't find it. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, I just think it's hilarious. So what they would do to McDermott is they printed out copies of this the new picture of him and they would stick it in a file that they knew that she would have to go through. Oh so this is like hazing the rookie cop. Totally. So maybe we can deep deep dive into looking for that photo later. But I mean this is really when they start to uncover this really crazy secret life that Dirk has going it. I think what surprised me is how did he manage to have a full-time job and keep up this? I mean, when did he sleep? Yeah, but the thing is that I think this is part of this case, and I'm not sure if anybody has really talked about this. This was the advent, right, of pornography on the internet, of all these casual dating sites, of everything very easily at your fingertips. And he... I think he had an absolutely out of control sex addiction. And all of a sudden, this stuff is right there. You plug in your credit card, you can correspond with people, you can send pictures, they send pictures to you. It's easy, no strings attached kind of sex. And that's what he was into. Some of the exchanges really they're creepy they so are they're, creepy i think we should also add that as his behavior is escalating and his sexual addiction or whatever you want to call it is escalating and i mean he's spending up to four hours a day on on line on internet porn so let's just let the listener know how time consuming this is he's spending all of his time online he's and he's spending an enormous amount of money one thing that really pissed me yeah. off 
was that he would give out to May. Like, May couldn't, like, buy a light bulb without running it by him. Right, and he's I, spending $400 a he, night on hookers. Oh, you know. And this behavior really seems to almost be escalating at the end. I mean, he's seeing, calling escorts he, constantly. He sees, the one escort was like, he was too needy. Like, you know, I, I turned him away. Well, I think more than one. I think that maybe that's a that's a warning sign when the escorts are. I mean, how creepy do you have to be to get cut off from an escort service? That's right. And as as we know, the night of May's murder, he contacts an escort by the name of Deborah Herrera, and that everybody makes a big deal of it, and it is a big deal. However, it was to cancel. He basically emails her to say, "I've had a family tragedy, and I'm you know canceling. Right, I won't be." active for a couple of weeks or right because i'm sure she was very concerned about it <laughs> yeah he seems to inflate these relationships in his own mind and the escorts seem to pick up on this neediness and that's why several of them testified that they had to yeah but their whole business is needy men right right saying. which just shows you, you know, the, the creepiness factor that he had that he was turning off it was a full bore sexual sex addiction that is if anybody, May was in his way. I mean, he just wanted to go full bore. I agree. I think that she was just, I just don't think he wanted to be married anymore. So lots of guys cheat on their wife, right? But they don't murder them. Right. So he was definitely having extramarital affairs and pretty active lifestyle. But uh, beyond that, let's do a little rundown of, of the evidence that we have so far, because the clothes that they took from him, they went and they had those tested. And what they find is they find blood spatter, right? On his shoes. Right. Uh, they it, find high velocity blood spatter. So he had to be in close proximity. To where May was killed. That's May's May blood. Was... And also you had mentioned too, that there's cast off blood on the back of the jacket. Which would come from, you know, bringing the weapon behind his head. So from, you know, you, using the weapon and then bringing it back behind his head while he was using it. So none of those, none of the blood would coincide with his story that he had gone over to her while she was bleeding. And, you know, these are the things that the, the knife and the hammer and the gloves and the second glove and all of these things are what start to lead the police to think that he's guilty and to have more and more suspicion over him, you know, about Grindadier. And, you know, they at this point, they're just watching him very, very closely. And at this point, May's family is cooperating with the police. The family has split a bit. The, the family is split where the children are still very much supporting his very father. Very passionately supporting. But May's sister and her niece, they asked the police point blank, do you think he did it? And the police fully tells them, yeah. Uh, you know, we think that that they did. So they're they're building up the evidence. They they realize this is one of the the press is all over this. Yeah, case, this is a huge course. huge case. I right. you know, they don't want to arrest him before they have all their ducks in a row. And so pretty prematurely, right? They're kind of monitoring him. Belinda, the cousin, is kind of playing both sides and kind of monitoring what the family's doing. She, she's still talking to Dirk. And she's talking to the right. police. And telling the police kind of what, what they're at. And at one point they even go on vacation to Denmark and the police are nervous are that, nervous that he may right. flee, but they notify because, him. Because he's got a Lebanese passport. He speaks four languages. He's a definite right. flight, flight risk. And even I had read that in Denmark, 
the Danish authorities keep a very close eye on him. Right, and it's not there. until a few months later when he plans a family trip to San Diego that they get extremely concerned and think that he may flee. Because he, he knows that the police are gunning for him. Right. At this point, it's really coming down to it. They, you know, the evidence has come, the DNA has come back and they are, are extremely concerned he may flee. And so it's really prior to this trip to San Diego that they decide to arrest him. I had read that even the arrest, his arrest, at his place of work, Foley was horrified. Foley was like, look, it could have been me and McDermott going in there, taking him out in cuffs through the back door. But no, Keating, who I think was like the lead DA, was really flashy about this. They had, I don't think they had SWAT teams, but practically outside of his office and made a big press show, basically. Yeah, about this was the a big, big of, deal. Of, of... We haven't really spoken that much about Grinder's defense attorney, Martin Murphy, and I guess this was his first big homicide case is what I was reading. And Murphy was, as far as I know, an excellent attorney. He actually went to Princeton, which is kind of interesting for us because we're Ivy League murders. Keeping it all in the Ivy League. Keeping it Ivy. That's right. But he was like a Haverhill kid. Haverhill is like kind of a like a lower income it's not in not, Massachusetts yeah it's it's kind of working class and so kind of a Haverhill kid that made good and uh, got to Princeton and strangely he I think he and Grundy the prosecutor had actually worked for the same law firm he also knew Marty Foley I think their fathers were both Massachusetts State Police. So it's so Boston Irish, like they all freaking know each other, (laughs) like probably like distant cousins, you know. And I think it's important to talk about that. um, I mean, maybe people today aren't as familiar with Court TV, but at the time of this trial, Court TV was in its heyday. And I actually watched this trial on Court TV and this trial was completely televised. So this was a really big trial. And this was when Court TV was super popular and people watched, you know, they watched trials morning till night, Nancy Grace, you know, lots and lots of drama. So, I mean, people really watched this gavel to gavel coverage. Yeah. So give us a little rundown on the trial, because I frankly just don't think that Martin, as the defense attorney, had that much to work with. I mean, he sort of he pushed back on a lot of procedural kind of things, i.e. Reiniter had not been read as Miranda rights. And so they tried to sort of throw evidence out, out of that. They gave Foley a huge runaround because in his affidavit for the search warrant, he had mislabeled himself as working for 14 years for in a specific capacity where it was just it was basically just a typo. I think they were trying to find any angle they could. Can you give us a rundown on the physical evidence that the prosecution because the prosecution started out as in all trials where they present their case. Right. What did they present the jury with? So they have quite a bit of physical evidence. They have the drilling hammer and they have the knife and they have the gloves and they have his clothes and all of these have blood and DNA on them. So these are all strong pieces of physical evidence that connect him to the murder. And why was the clothing so compelling? We sort of already covered this, but it really was the high velocity blood spatter that was found on his shoes and the cast off blood that was found on the back of the jacket. Yes. And I think also this... Which indicates 
to the close proximity, right, to the, the wound. But I think another compelling blood spatter was on the sleeve of the jacket because there was a lot of blood spatter on the sleeve and under the sleeve even, but there was none on his hands. So how did the blood splatter get on his sleeve and under his sleeve but miss his hands? Obviously, his hands were covered. So the clean hands come come back again to haunt him. Gloves seem to foil so many murders. Gloves are not always a good idea. They, in this case, he used gloves to get away with the murder and they wound up making him look much more guilty. Um, You also have the knife, which has her blood and DNA on it, Um, the hammer. And let's not forget that the hammer can also be tied in with the receipt to the hardware store. And the receipt that was found in In Dirk's garage. Now, so that is another connection with the physical evidence. You have, there were baggies found on the scene and that were connected to baggies in his home. So we, we have a lot of strong physical connections from the scene of the crime to his home or to him. And Grundy's presenting it to the jury as if this this could be from nobody else. And then he continues to move on from the physical evidence to the witnesses. And the witnesses they find, Grindeter still complains that 30% of the trial was spent on all of his sort of sexual exploits. I do think it's interesting, though, that they tried to, quote unquote, limit the computer activity. The only the, the judge did limit it to it, seven days. Seven days prior as being relevant to the the. The crime. The crime. But seven days, he was a busy bee on the computer seven days. And during those seven days, there's a lot of activity. I kind of question the defense in this case because, uh, in this manner, because they they have it limited to seven days. But in my opinion, it would have looked better if it wasn't limited because the amount of sexual escapades activity he has in seven days. But they did. Actually, what the defense did is when they realized their mistake in the seven days, they they expanded it back and and went through the whole history. Because it's so... It was was like damage control, though. Right. I mean, four hours a day on internet porn. He had seen an escort the previous week. He had... But the witnesses, the escort witnesses that they found, one was Elizabeth Porter. She had HIV. She was like this sad soul. And another woman who had a child, she was like lived in a very quiet suburban neighborhood. She didn't want to be exposed and she was afraid that she, obviously this is on court TV, her whole lifestyle was going to be exposed, basically. And the police did a fantastic job in trying to find these witnesses. It was a very laborious thing. This is all anonymous, on the, on the net. You know, they're, they're chasing down usernames. Tom Young, poor guy. Okay, so Dirk was roommates. At with, Yale with Tom Young. Yes, with Tom Young and another guy, Rosenthal is shocked to read about this case. There's no way my old friend Grinder could have done this. But as he's reading it along, he knows that the police are trying to look for the identity of Tom Young. Now, Tom Young is the name that Grinder takes out for credit cards. He also creates postings in these various like sex and porn databases. 
under the name of Tom. It's kind of like his alter ego that he uses for his deviant lifestyle. Exactly. So Rosenthal realizes, makes the connection between Tom Young, who also went to Yale with T and Dirk. It's interesting. I wonder why he picked Tom Young of all the people. Why he? Because it's such a what, what, it's such a vanilla name. I mean, yeah, it's such true. A, I mean, there's got to be a gazillion Tom Youngs out there, right? Right. And I wonder if it was something about that Tom Young he wanted to emulate that he went back and decades later and pulled his name and used it. And the trial also exposes the rift in the family when May's sister testifies against Dirk and testifies to and May's niece, Belinda, who was very close to her. And they testify really to his meaner demeanor after- the And controlling in- behavior. Behavior during the marriage. And then really to the way he behaved after her death, which really was not a typical grieving husband. So now everyone can see the Dirk is, is... But but the kids have his back. And the kids will even lie. The son claims to have bought these nails at the... Remember the receipt for $6.97? The son claims that he had bought those nails. I mean, they're going to any lengths to, to try to protect their father. Who can blame them? They've lost their mother. This is all they have. I think it probably speaks to the power and control he had in the family as to how much power and control he still seems to maintain even when he's on trial for his life. And they, you know, the prosecution just continues to hammer home how it really just couldn't have been anyone else. And they really asked the jurors to take a look at Dirk's movements the day prior to the murder and the morning of the murder. Let's remember he canceled his gym membership the day before. You know, it looks like he was kind of planning this. And and he does himself no favors by testifying, getting on the stand himself, because what he does once again is he tries to alibi some of the evidence. In other words, now he comes up with a whole new story about what he did after May's death. He tries to drag her three times. He tries to pick her up. He's trying to explain away matters of evidence. I don't know if we mentioned, but there was also a bloody towel that was found with both his blood and and, and May's blood on it. And he had concocted the story about that they had a, a nosebleed at the same time, which is so absurd. I mean, and, I don't know, and, Sarah, I've been married for a long time. And I mean, I don't know that I've ever had a nosebleed, maybe once, but the odds of me and my husband, me and Owen having a nosebleed. I don't want to hear time. about your personal life, I mean, Laura. It's just, I mean it's, come on. It's the most ridiculous <laughs> story ever. And I think that this these stories are so ridiculous. And, you know, the jurors are not buying. Story. Right. And Grundy just absolutely cross-examined the hell out of out of Grindadair. And it just made him look extra, extra dicey. I and think. Grundy asks the jury to look at the morning of the crime and, and asks himself, how would you react? And he finds his wife murdered. And what does he do? We have an 11 minute time period. Between the, when the scream the is scream, heard, right. when he calls for help, we have the bird walker who testifies that he sees Grinader go down this access road prior to asking him for help. Right, so he's not screaming, yelling, running. I mean, he's not kind of this frantic, screaming, help me, help me, that we would expect. Grundy's asking the, the jury to look at that. And then we can look at the defense side, and there's really not much to look at there. 
The defense holds on very tightly to this third DNA that's found on the glove. Obviously, this is very weak because they can't explain away these weapons that were found in the drain. They can't explain away his DNA, and they really don't even attempt to. They... And, and the foreign DNA that's found on the glove, you had a good theory about that. This is some a glove that's sold in a hardware store. Other people are touching this glove, picking it up, right. looking at it. There's a, a number of different reasons why that third party DNA could be on that glove. Right, that would be hanging in a department store. So, I mean, I, I do have to a, say, everything looks really hopeless for Grindadier, but then at the 11th hour, right. the police get a letter from a witness, from a neighbor in that neighborhood saying, I wrote you guys, when I saw this case on the news initially, I wrote to you guys, I, I there was a strange man in my driveway, he was sweating, he was looking up at my house, I wrote you a letter and uh, you did nothing about it. So the court basically receives this letter, they receive this information at the 11th hour, literally right before the attorneys are going to give their closing arguments. I think. Grundy must have just had an absolute oh shit moment. So the Foley and McDermott, they scrabbled to see if they had ever gotten correspondence from this woman. <laughs> Turns out this woman is a little bit odd. She's had a number of incidences with the police. She's called several times and it turns out there was a jogger, but he he was a legitimate guy. He was just looking at the house and it all turned out to be just a, a red herring, basically. So then court proceeds. Now both attorneys give their closing arguments. They do, and the jury is extremely, extremely emotional having to make this decision. They do not want to find him guilty. That emotionally, they do not want to find him guilty. Those kids were in the courtroom every, day. every single day. I think they had a lot of difficulty with this very respectable seeming guy doing this to his wife. I think it was even with all the sexual stuff. One of one of the jurors was like, "Oh, all the sex stuff was that didn't mean that much to us." No, it just it never really. You don't have to give a jury a motive, but they like one. That's right. They like one. And this case never really made a lot of sense. And I think the jury was very torn. But in the end... Well, well, let's talk a little bit about motive, though. Because I struggle with the accepted theory in this case that the motive was, you know, he wanted to conduct this alternative lifestyle. And she found out. I think she had found out and he was so controlling that she had just kind of accepted it. If you had found out, put it to you this way, if you had found out, would you go on a stroll in a pond with your husband if you had found out he was cheating on you? No, that wouldn't be, that, I definitely wouldn't. I, I actually don't believe, I, I know that that was the prosecution's argument that perhaps she had been in his computer and seen something and that was the motive. I don't think she had any idea. I. My personal opinion is the youngest daughter had left the house and he just didn't want to be married anymore. He wanted to be a single man. He didn't want to be divorced and be the bad guy. And I think he really did not want to lose face with his children. And this was by, 
I think his hope was, however clumsily it was executed, I think his hope was to make May look like the third victim in this string of murders. Right. And he'd be a victim too, and, and he'd be a widower. And, and he'd be a widower and, and, you know, recipient of all kinds of sympathy and probably money. And it just didn't work out that way for him. No, and he's, you know, I think, I mean, I think he's a narcissistic psychopath. So I think you think everyone's a narcissistic psychopath. But I think he thinks, you know, I don't, I think he thought he was smarter than everyone. I think he thought he would get away with it and everything revolves around him. And he has clearly no conscience. Right. Well, he's probably a brilliant doctor. His his research is still cited in in articles about allergy research. A little factoid, Sarah, that you might want to know about psychopaths is that psychopaths, um, they found in studies, have a, a sort of lower gag reflex, which may be why we find so many psychopaths that are physicians. Because when they did studies and they showed psychopaths disturbing photographs, they aren't as disturbed by them as hmm. non-psychopaths. So hmm. I don't think there's any research on that as far as physicians go, but we have been finding in our research that we're coming across quite a few physicians. It's true. Who are better physicians than they are murderers. Right. But let's just say that in the end, the jury deliberated and they did find Dirk Grinadier guilty and he was sent to jail for life. I think one of the jurors, Cheryl Nixon, summed it up perfectly. She said, the difficulty of this case was really, you were staring at what is the American dream. You're looking at it and it looks back at you and reveals something horrible underneath it. None of us wanted to believe that, that under the perfection and the accomplishments, something could happen like this. We are Ivy League Murders. Our music is composed by Russell Jarvis. Our researcher is Christy Wagner. We're all from Cambridge, repping 38. If you'd like to support us, please do the following. Hit the subscribe button, give us five stars, Tell your friends to listen and support us on our Patreon, where you can find us under Ivy League Murders. Ivy League Murders is a Clovercrest Media Group production.